One, one second, don't, don't, uh, I'm going to stay on mute one second. Uh, um, at seven o'clock, I'm going to take questions. I'm going to end off the program at seven o'clock and then take questions that time. Sure. Okay. Inshallah. You can start, inshallah. I can start? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> نحمد ونصلي على رسوله الكريم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب يشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمي وحل الأقطة من لساني يفقه قولي بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته respected members of the Darussalam community I hope everyone is in good health and in the best state of iman during this current crisis of ours may Allah subhanahu wa taala enable us to weather through this in best states, all you know, in every single aspect. Um, today, we will be focusing on the subject of aqidah. And before we begin the subject, let's just define aqidah. What exactly is aqidah? So, simply speaking, the term aqidah comes from the root letters ain, qaf, and dal. Aqt, the word aqt. The linguistic definition of akt is to tie a knot, right? When you take a rope and you tie a knot, that little thing right there, that's called akt. And also, linguistically speaking, the word akt can refer to something which settles into the heart, right? It's more in a hypothetical scenario. Sorry, not hypothetical, a metaphorical sense. Something that settles in the heart, meaning that you are certain about meaning that your conviction in a statement or a belief is as strong as a tight knot. The technical definition, however, when the word aqidah is used in the terminologies associated with Islam, it simply means the discipline by which a Muslim comes to know what he is obligated to believe. The discipline by which a Muslim knows what he is obligated to believe. In Islam, we have various types of obligations, right? For example, salah is a type of obligation. Uh, zakat is another type of obligation. Hajj, umrah, that's another type of obligation. And treating our Muslim brothers and sisters and our fellow non-Muslim human beings, any living human thing with respect, with kindness, with compassion and mercy, it's also a sort of obligation. Obligations pertaining to physical manifestations, physical actions, like performing salah, like for example, abstaining from food and drink in Ramadan. This pertains to what we call fiqh, the field of fiqh. Obligations which pertain to the treatment of other human beings, and our own character, developing our own character that belongs to the realm of what we call tasawwuf, or more generally speaking, just akhlaq, to develop our, developing our character. And those obligations in Islam which pertain to our belief system, our belief system, what we have to believe, that is known as aqidah. And arguably, ulama say that aqidah is the most essential component of Islam. Aqidah is the determining factor between whether a person will find salvation or whether he will receive condemnation or damnation in Jahannam forever. Just imagine this scenario. Imagine a scenario in which a person, he pulls up his sleeves, 
and he gets out of his bed. He walks to the masjid on a cold day. He enters the masjid with his right foot. He makes wudu meticulously, reciting all the dua and nathkar that were prescribed to us and taught to us by Rasulullah And then he starts to pray. And in his salah, he is crying when he's thinking over the ayat of the Quran. Tears are flowing from his eyes. And when he's in sajda, he's in sajda with such fear. Outwardly, he seems like a very pious Muslim, such a religious person. However, there's one peculiarity. There's one problem. This one individual that we're talking about, he believes in two gods. He believes in God number A, God A and God B. Or this person believes that God isn't powerful, that there are some things in which God is weak. Or he believes, in a weird sense, that God has a son, or God was created once upon a time, or that God has a family. Now, we Muslims, with the basic knowledge that we have, we understand that this person, his salah will be of no benefit to him. No matter how many tears he sheds, this person, his Sliyam, his fasting will be of no benefit to him. This person, his zakat even will be of no benefit to him. His hajj will be of no benefit to him. Why? Even if he observes all the outward external conditions and procedures taught to us by Rasulullah it will still not benefit him because of the fundamental problem, the fundamental reason of his aqidah being wrong. A Muslim comes to know what his obligations in aqidah are through the discipline, the study of Aqidah. And all our other actions, whether it be our dealings with Muslims and non-Muslims and other you know, creatures, or whether it be our external worship in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything is predicated upon us having correct Aqidah. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the study of aqidah obligatory. It's an obligation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan wa-jim, fa'alam annahu la ilaha illallah. So know, fa'alam, know, O Muhammad. And when Allah is giving a command to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he is in effect in this ayah, giving a command to his followers that there is no deity except Allah. La ilaha illallah. In other words, believe, have conviction, know who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. Allah uses the word fa'alam, know. This is an imperative command. Now, how much of aqidah are we supposed to know? An average Muslim must understand the tenets of faith in a general sense. What this means, that an average Muslim must know what he has to believe and how he must believe in it, as taught by Rasulullah It's not necessary for every single Muslim to delve into the textual proofs to delve into the philosophical underpinnings of each belief, each tenet of belief. It's not necessary for every average Muslim to believe, to, to you know, know aqidah to that extent. But every Muslim must know what he is obligated to believe. To delve into further details, this is the responsibility, a collective communal obligation, what we call fard kifaya, as long as there's a group of specialists a group of scholars who are busy studying this field, applying their minds to the Quran and Sunnah and using their aql, using their intelligence to figure out arguments and to defend the tenets of belief as taught by Islam, 
then that would be sufficient. But for the average Muslim, he just must believe in what Rasulullah said to believe. Now, what did Rasulullah say to believe in? Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Baqarah, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ajim, Amana Rasulu Bima Unzila Ilayhi Mir Rabbihi Wal Mu'minun, Kullun Amana Billahi Wa Malaikatihi Wa Kutubihi Wa Rusulihi, La Nufarri Kubayna Ahadim Mir Rusuli, Wa Kalu Samirna Wa Ata'ana Rufranak, Rabbana Wa Ilaykal Masir. In a nutshell, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes what the messengers had believed in. Very briefly, what the messengers had believed in. The messengers has believed in what was revealed to him from his Lord, and so have the believers. <clears throat> All of them have believed in Allah and his angels and his books and his messengers, saying we make no distinction between any of his messengers. And they say, we hear and we obey. We seek your forgiveness, our Lord, and to you is the final destination. In a nutshell, what Allah says is that all the prophets that ever came from Adam alayhi salam to Nuh alayhi salam to Ibrahim alayhi salam to Musa alayhi salam, Sulaiman, Dawood, to Isa, to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, alayhi wasallam. Every single one of them had the exact same belief with regards to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every single one of them was obligated to believe in the angels. Every single one of them was obligated to believe in the books, the scriptures that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has brought and every other prophet that Allah had sent, and to not make any distinction between them, meaning that not to give superiority over one messenger over the other, to reject one at the expense of the other. And they said, we hear and we obey. We simply believe in what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, and also we believe that the final destination is towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is in a nutshell what we have to believe. Collectively, in other ayat of the Quran, we also know that we must believe in the day of judgment. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Maliki, Yawmiddin, the owner of the day of judgment. This is a statement, a creedal statement. We believe Allah is the owner of the day of judgment, meaning that there will be judgment. So in a nutshell, this is what we have to believe. We have to believe in Allah. We have to believe in his prophets. We have to believe in his divine scriptures, his angels, the day of Qiyamah. And also later on, the ulama also added predestination and resurrection after death sometimes as well. Even though it can sometimes be attributed to article 1 and 5. I'll explain that later. But there's another hadith to emphasize why these articles of faith were brought out and singled as major tenets of faith. There's this one famous hadith. Mentioned in Bukhari. And it's famously known as Hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam. Hadith of Jibreel. And it goes that Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu reported that we were sitting with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And one day a man appeared with very white clothes and very black hair. There were no signs of travel on him and we did not recognize him. Right? In other narrations it's mentioned, in Muslim for example, it's mentioned that this individual that the Sahaba saw while they were sitting with Rasulullah he was coming from a distance and entering the city of Medina and he, they, in the narration it's mentioned that this individual resembled the Sahabi Dihya Qalbi why Dihya Qalbi? because Dihya Qalbi was considered to be the most handsome of the Sahaba meaning that this individual that nobody knew was an extremely handsome individual and the strange thing was 
the strange thing was that he wasn't an inhabitant of Medina. If he was an inhabitant of Medina, then everyone would have been familiar with him at least. Or at least somebody must have been familiar with him, but nobody knew who this individual was. And he did not look like a traveler either. If he's not from Medina, the only other explanation could have been they came from some other city or village. But there were no signs of travel on him. He did not look wary. His hair was not disheveled. His, his clothes were, you know, immaculately clean. So this was an odd sight. And this individual came and he sat down in front of the Prophet ﷺ in the tashahud position, how we pray, and how we sit down during salah. And he sat down in front of the Prophet ﷺ, rested his knees in front of the knees and placing his, his hands on the thighs of Rasulullah ﷺ. And this strange peculiar, unknown, very handsome man said to Rasulullah Oh Muhammad, tell me about Islam. Right? He asked the question. He said, define Islam for me. And the Prophet replied, Islam is to testify that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah to establish prayer, to give charity, to fast in the month of Ramadan and to perform pilgrimage to the house if a way is possible. This is how Rasulullah defined Islam through what we commonly now know as the five pillars of Islam. The man then said, you have spoken truthfully. In other words, he asked Rasulullah a question and after Rasulullah explained the question, this individual, he corrected, he, he verified what Rasulullah said and this struck Umar anhu as odd. He said, we, are, we were surprised that he asked Rasulullah and he told Rasulullah that he was truthful. Like, who does this guy think he is? <laughs> you know, he's telling Rasulullah that, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. As if he's teaching Rasulullah And then this strange individual, he carried on with his second question. He said, tell me what is Iman? This is a, it's a bit different from the first question. The first question was, what is Islam? In this question, he asked, what is Iman? What is faith? And the Prophet ﷺ replied, and this is why this hadith is relevant to us. Faith is to believe in Allah, his angels, his books, his messengers, the last day, and to believe in providence, taqdeer. It's good and it's evil. Let's go through it again. This strange individual asked Rasulullah what is iman? And the Prophet ﷺ said, number one, it's Allah, to believe in Allah. Number two, to believe in his angels. Number three, to believe in his books. Number four, to believe in his messengers. Number five, to believe in the last day. And number six, to believe in predestination, in providence, that good and bad come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you really think about it, this is what is normally taught to us in our maktab when we were kids. Right? Imani mufassal, amantu billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rusulihi wal yawmil akhiri wal qadri khayrihi wa sharrihi min Allahi ta'ala. Then this strange individual, he carried on with his third question. He asked the Prophet ﷺ, what is Ihsan? The word Ihsan. And in brief, the Prophet ﷺ said, Ihsan means, the definition of Ihsan is to worship Allah as if you see him. For if you do not see him, he surely sees you. Meaning it's a very high level of worship, a very high level of consciousness and awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we should all strive to achieve. That's what Ihsan is. And then this individual also said, you have spoken the truth. And this strange individual carried on with his fourth question. And he asked the Prophet ﷺ, tell me about Qiyamah, tell me about the final hour. And the Prophet ﷺ said, 
the one asked does not know more than the one asking. The Prophet simply said and honestly said, I don't know the answer any more than you know the answer. Meaning that the final hour, when is it going to take place? That knowledge is only with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even Rasulullah did not know that. And the man said that you have spoken the truth. But sorry, the man then said, okay, then tell me about its signs. When will the last hour take place? And the Prophet gave one sign. He said, the slave, sorry, two signs. He said, the slave girl will give birth to her mistress. Meaning that one interpretation is that children or daughters will command their parents. They will lose respect for their parents. And you will see barefoot, naked, and dependent shepherds compete in the construction of tall buildings. Meaning that there will be a region in which formerly the people were simple shepherds and Bedouins, farmers. And all of a sudden, because of a sudden increase in wealth and technology, they became, you know, these architects competing to build high-rise buildings. For example, one example, and Allah said it could possibly be alluding to Dubai. Dubai just 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago was a desert. And today you can see the tall high-rise buildings which are being built there. Carrying on, finally, the man returned and I remain. Meaning this individual, after asking these four questions, what is Islam, what is Iman, what is the final hour, and uh, what, is, what is Ihsan, he departed. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to Umar radiallahu anhu, Oh Umar, do you know who he was? And, and Umar radiallahu anhu said, Allah and his messenger knows best. He replied respectfully because he didn't know the answer. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Verily this individual was Jibreel alayhi salam who came to teach you about your religion. This was Jibreel alayhi salam. And this incident, this hadith took place near the end of Rasulullah ﷺ's life. Towards the end of his mission to summarize the teachings of Islam. And in it, he, the first two questions were very interesting and it's of direct concern to us. Jibreel asked, what is Islam and what is Iman? Now what's the difference between Islam and Iman? One explanation is when you use the word Islam, it refers to the, in, it, the external aspects of our deen, our external manifestations of worship, like the five pillars like praying salah, fasting, doing hajj, giving zakat, etc. And the word iman normally refers to matters of the heart, matters which are internal. In other words, matters that pertain to aqidah. Now, inshallah, in the following weeks, we will be analyzing and breaking down these tenets of Islam further. We will analyze what is meant by believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What is meant by believing in the prophets? What does Allah mean by believing in his scriptures? What does Allah mean by believing in angels? Who are the angels? What are they? What does Allah mean by believing in the day of judgment? What is predestination? And what is resurrection after death as well? We'll go into detail. We'll look at two things. We'll look at scriptural proofs mainly. And briefly, we'll look over logical proofs as well. See, Islam... As Muslims, we believe that there is complete harmony between textual, scriptural proofs and human rationale, human, you know, uh, uh, logical proofs. But primarily in our study of Aqidah, we want to tackle the basics and we will primarily look at it from a textual perspective. To delve into the more philosophical aspects of Islam and in more detail this is where a subject 
which that branches out of Aqidah, and it's called Ilmul Kalam. What is Ilmul Kalam? Ilmul Kalam is the science by which the tenets of Islam are ascertained and supplied by argumentation. Whereas in Aqidah, the sole purpose of Aqidah is simply to ascertain what we have to believe. It's a far more simple science. The science of Ilmul Kalam is slightly different in, the, in, in one major respect. It's that it's supplied with argumentation. It's more conversational. It's dialectic. There's always this hypothetical crowd that we're trying to answer. For example, you know, in a dialogue with Christians or Jews or Hindus or Buddhists or heterodox sects like the Shias, or for example, historically speaking, there was this one sect, Islamic sect called the Mu'tazilis, and they had deviant beliefs, how to formulate rational arguments to disprove their stance and to prove our stance. That's the science of Ilmul Kalam. And it's employed in defending tenets in interfaith dialogues, right? There are two types of sources used in Kalam debates. One is what we call Aqli sources. Aqli means rational proofs. For example, if we want to prove the existence of God, what logical proofs do we have? And then we have what's called Naqli proofs, scriptural proofs. And scriptural proofs means it refers to evidences from the Quran and Sunnah. What did the Prophet say? And what did his Rabb Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? And it is, the term ilmul kalam is sometimes used interchangeably with the term aqidah. But the truth of the matter is, historically speaking, aqidah occupied a more specific, a more general field, a more simplified field, whereas ilmul kalam was a more rigorous and intellectual endeavor. It was more specific and it was meant for the specialist. Now, what will we be doing in the following 10 weeks? We'll be focused on the subject of aqidah before we can even delve into ilmul kalam before we rush into debate with our christian friends or with our atheist relatives allah forbid or when we want to rush into debate online you know keyboard warriors trying to defend islam all with noble endeavors mashallah but before we even begin to debate we have to first ensure that ya allah my aqidah is sahih my aqidah is correct that i know what i'm obligated to believe only by knowing what you're obligated to believe in first, then can you take the next step of learning the arguments to defend our tenants and to give da'wah, to articulate them in a manner in which we can open the doors for other people to accept Islam as well. <clears throat> so some of the famous discussions of Ilm al-Kalam, we're just going to run through them, is for example, the existence of Allah. Historically speaking, we had many interactions with atheist groups or groups you know, which had some form of atheism, whether it be, you know, um, schools which took their color from the ancient Greek philosophers or whether it be modern groups today. And with regards to the finality of prophethood, for example, historically speaking, there were those who claimed prophethood as well. And our ulama rose to the occasion to formulate arguments and to defend the very central tenet of Islam, which is the finality of the prophethood of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Questions such as where is Allah? Can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala occupy free space? Questions such as predestination, meaning if Allah had predestined everything, does that mean that we humans don't have free will? So Al-Muqlam tries to answer this question. Does Allah possess a physical hand or physical attributes to begin with? Is the speech of the Quran eternal? Etc, etc, etc. As the centuries progressed and, our, and Islam began to grow out of you know, the Arabian Peninsula, 
and it started to encompass entire civilizations which had ancient traditions and ancient religions. When Muslims were, you know, in danger of having their faith diluted with, you know, un-Islamic beliefs, that's where Kalam came into the fore to address questions as they rose. So you can see that Al-Muqlam is very responsive. It's a very, what we call, you know, it's reactive in the sense that they formulate their discussions in response to the dominant doubts, questions, and objections of that time. And the reasons for the development of Ilm al-Kalam primarily were, number one, political reasons, right? In Islam, in the beginning, we all remained as one community, right? The Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. We followed Rasulullah as understood by his students and his followers, the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala But after a few decades, after the Prophet had passed away, there were two distinct groups that emerged, what we call the proto-Shias, not Shias as they exist today, but you can say their ancestors, the first semblance or you know, evidence of this group emerging. And then you also had the Khawarij, right? The origins of which it's a lengthy discussion in of itself. These groups emerged because of political reasons, because of a disagreement with regards to who should be the leader of the Muslim communities after the demise of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And as these groups, they shifted away from the main community of the Muslims, from the Orthodox community of the Muslims, the, they formulated their own ideology and the ulama, they became busy in responding to them with textual and logical proofs and slowly discrystallized into what we know and now know as the science of Ilm al-Kalam. And then the second reason was for theological reasons. You had individuals and schools who were influenced by other philosophies which contained beliefs antithetical, contradictory to Islam. Some groups, the names of which were Mu'tazilis, Jabarites, Mujassimin, Qadariya, etc. And in response to them, the Mutakallimin, I mean those who, um, you know, they busied themselves in the science of Al-Mukaram, they also responded to the occasion by formulating arguments and defending our tenets of faith. This is in essence what Al-Mukaram is. Our primary focus will be on Aqidah, to understand what we have to believe as Muslims, inshallah, starting with the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his attributes. And along the way, by the way, we will supply some arguments in brief. But if anybody wants to understand them in more detail, and it can get into quite a bit of detail, these type of discussions, then you'll have to do a full course. It's not something which is possible to be expounded upon in a short you know, 10 week period in which we're devoting half an hour a week. So tomorrow, uh, next week, inshallah, we will begin with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What the, what's the Islamic conception of God? What is Tawheed? And how is our concept of God different from other religions? What do we have to believe in as Muslims? What are the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How many attributes are there? And what are the types of attributes? We will supply, inshallah, evidences from the Quran and Sunnah as we progress, as well as logical proofs as well. Okay, we'll end off here for today. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But inshallah, as we uh, progress, we will go into the other tenets of faith as well. The week after that, we will focus on the Islamic concept of prophethood. Right? What exactly is the definition of a Nabi? The definition of a Rasul? What was their job? Um, how is the Islamic concept of prophethood differ from other religions, whether it be Christianity or even Hinduism. Surprisingly, Hinduism has a concept of prophethood in their religion as well. 
Then we will carry on to angels. What are angels? And to divine scriptures. How many books did Allah reveal? What do we have to believe with regards to them? How many books are left over today? And the other tenets as well. And one thing that I want to also focus on is why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell us to believe in these things? Sometimes if you think about it, that, you know, I know I have to believe in angels, but why? How does that benefit me? These invisible beings that we can't see, which are made up of light, how does it affect my life as an individual? How does it affect my life as a Muslim? How does it affect my life to know that there were other prophets that came before? How does it affect my life to know that Allah had sent other scriptures as well? How does it make, you know, how does it affect my life to know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has control over everything? But at the same time, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us free will. Why did Allah tell us to believe in all these things? We will delve into those questions and try to answer them as well. Um, inshallah, I hope to answer your questions at the end of every session. So typically I want a session. We will try to end it off by seven o'clock from 6.30 to seven o'clock. And from seven o'clock, I will be taking questions, inshallah. And I will try my best to tend to your queries. So if I can ask uh, Mulana Farhan, to look at the questions at the chat and um, forward those questions to me. Inshallah, for the next 15 minutes, I will tend to those questions. Okay, I got one question here on my WhatsApp. I don't, I don't if we can take Mafrahan's permission to answer that. That's not from YouTube. Um, what is an Ashiri and what is a Maturidi? And which one's on the truth? Inshallah, um, I will try to answer this question um, in, a, in a bit more detail as our course progresses. But more or less, um, just briefly speaking, just like how we have different schools of thought, with regards to jurisprudence, right? With regards to what we call fiqh, the practice, the physical practice of Islam. How do we pray salah? How do we give zakat? We have four main schools. We have the Hanafi school, we have the Hanbali school, we have the Shafi school, and we have the Maliki school. Similarly, in the field of Aqidah itself, we have, I would say, three major schools within heterodox Islam. We have what's called the Ash'ari, we have what's called the Maturidi, and we have what's called they call themselves the Athari. And sometimes, you know, uh, generally speaking, the Ash'aris and the Maturidis, they did not consider themselves to be too different from one another, right? They were almost the same thing. Um, but the Ash'aris would sometimes clash um, in debates with the Athari's as well. These debates are um, very complex sometimes, but it is my personal belief that it's not something major. The, the debates between the Athari's and the Ash'aris and the Maturidis, it's not something which is a matter of kufr iman, if understood correctly. Um, but inshallah, as we progress, I will go into a bit more history of both these groups as we carry on. Okay, are there any more questions? Okay, I guess not. Jazakallah khair for listening. Inshallah, we will carry on with our discussion, starting with the first tenet of faith, with, which is with regards to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his attributes. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.